I invite you this morning to Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. In Romans 12, 1, Paul began a new section in his letter, a section that is built on the foundation that he laid in chapters 1 through 11, a foundation that described the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel so marvelous, so infinite, that Paul ended that treatment with a doxology of praise. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Everything is from God, through God, for God. And so built on the gospel, and he says in verse 1, in view of God's mercies, and he calls us then to live out the gospel in our daily lives, in our daily practice, in our everyday thoughts and behaviors. And in verse 1, he said, our fundamental duty to God in view of the mercies of God is to give God our all. To give God everything. He is worthy of our whole bodies as a living, continual for our whole lives, sacrifice to God. And that is our act of worship. It's a lifelong act of worship. Not just a one-time act of bringing an animal to be sacrificed on an altar, but it is a daily, moment by moment, bringing our lives to the altar and giving ourselves to God in everything that we have, and in all areas of our lives. Not just what we might call the religious or the spiritual, but everything in our lives is to be given to God. And in verse 2, he says, really the only way that we can do this, the only way that we can really give God our all and live our lives as a sacrifice to God is to have a completely transformed mind. A whole new way of thinking. A way of thinking that is not patterned after the world. A a way of thinking that is not captive to this age. But a way of thinking that instead looks forward to the new age that is to come. In essence, Paul is asking us in verse 2 to draw the, the, the future hope of the new age, to draw it into the present. And to live life now in the present age in view of the age to come. And to have a, a mind that is transformed by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. This is only something that can happen by the Holy Spirit of God. He renews us. He transforms our minds. He begins that with regeneration. Titus 3.5 Through regeneration, we are renewed by the Holy Spirit. And so that begins the process of mind and thought renewal. But Paul is calling upon us then to build on that work of regeneration in the Holy Spirit's ongoing work of sanctification in our lives as we work through His power, through His energy that He supplies to us to actively and purposefully not put our minds into the mold or the pattern of this world, but to have our minds put into the mold or the pattern of Christ and His Word. And, by the way, how did you do with the challenge last week? Y'all thought I would forget, right? No. Last week I challenged you, don't, don't pick up your phone the first thing in the morning. Don't let the phone be the last thing you look at at night. Instead, start your day with Scripture, end your day with Scripture. I'll give myself a C. All right? 
a confession time. I'll give myself a C. I need to do better. I did well in the mornings. I didn't do as well in the evenings. Uh, but hope you all did an A, all right? And I'm going to strive for an A this week. But we have to be purposeful about that, right? We have, to, we have to be purposeful about how our minds are being shaped and the things that enter into our minds. So we, we build on the work of the Holy Spirit and the power that he's giving us to come to a transformed mind so that we can know what God's will is for our lives, so we can put it into practice in our lives. And the only way I think that we can do what Paul's asking us to do next in Romans 12, 3 through 8, is to have that transformed mind. Because Romans 12, 3 through 8 is focused almost exclusively on the church, on the body of Christ, on our relationship to one another in the body of Christ. And in order for us to, to be the body, in order for us to be the, the church of Jesus Christ, of which he is the living head, and we are the members of his body, in order to do that, we have to have that transformed mind. And in verse 3, he tells us that that transformed mind lives itself out in a humility. Humility. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that your word shapes and forms our thinking. It gives us a new way of looking at life now that we are your disciples. Lord, help us today as we look to this passage of scripture that uh, we would see how we should relate to one another in the body of Christ. The church that you have purchased with the sacrifice of your own son, Jesus Christ. Now, this being his church, of which he is the head, may we learn how to live and serve together in unity and in, in the grace that you supply. So, Father, help us to learn and to apply your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing Paul teaches us in this passage in verse 3 is that in order to serve together as a church, we must have a proper view of ourselves. In order to serve together as a church, we must have a proper view of ourselves. And in order for us to have a proper view of ourselves, we have to have a transformed mind. And he says in verse 3, for 
by the grace given to me. That little word for may not seem incredibly significant, but what it does is it attaches what Paul is about to say to what he has just said. So we need to have a transformed mind, a mind that's not conformed to the world, but that is transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. As we have that transformed mind, arising out of that will be a right view of ourselves. A right view of ourselves. By the way, in verse 3, there is an intentional play on words in the Greek. And we can even see it some, somewhat in English, but it's very, very clear in Greek. There are three different words that are used in Greek, but they all have the same root. And that same root is to think or to discern. And, and so he says in verse 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. We take a lot of English words to translate one Greek word, which is basically do not hyperthink. Do not hyperthink of yourselves. And then he says, but think, there's the root verb, but think of yourselves with sober judgment. And that also is one Greek word that begins with the prefix sophro, which is wise. So don't hyperthink, but think wise think is kind of a very literal way of translating it. So don't think of yourself highly, more highly than you ought, but think wisely, soberly about who you are. And that, so all of those different words of thinking, I think also connect us back to verse 2, that our minds are to be transformed by the grace of God. That as our minds are transformed, then we will adopt then a certain way of thinking, a certain way of viewing the world and viewing ourselves. One thing that I think is probably obvious to everyone is that endemic to the human nature is the tendency to be prideful. It's just, it's just endemic to who we are. As, as sinful human beings, fallen, as descendants of Adam and Eve, we have a natural tendency to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And that is the pattern of the world. That is the pattern of this age. Do you remember when, this is a story in the Gospels, remember when a couple of the disciples of Jesus were arguing with one another about who was going to sit next to Jesus in the kingdom? No, I'm going to sit on his right hand. No, I'm going to sit on his right hand, the place of honor. And remember what Jesus said to them? He says, don't be like the Gentiles which he means by that, don't be like the world. Don't be like the unbelievers. Don't be like the way that this world thinks because the way that this world thinks is I'm in charge, I'm better. I want to lord it over you. And Jesus says, don't think like that because the pattern of thinking of a disciple of Jesus is flipped on its head of the pattern of thinking of the world. Because the world says, I'm going to be great. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to be in charge of other people. I'm going to tell other people what to do. I'm going to be greater and more talented. And Jesus says, no, the way of thinking as a disciple of Jesus is the least among you will be the greatest. The one who is servant will be the greatest of all. It's a completely opposite way of thinking, isn't it? But that's transformed thinking. 
transformed thinking is not thinking like the world. The world thinks I've got to be I've got to be the best. I've got to be the one in charge. I've got to be the one having the last word. I've got to be the one who is better than the others. And Jesus says to his disciples, no, don't be like that. And Paul is teaching us here, no, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. But think of yourselves wisely, soberly. And, and really the, the, the idea there of sober-minded is very closely related to the way that we use the word sober in our context. We've used the word sober in our context to talk about somebody who is free of intoxication, right? Somebody who's not drunk. Somebody who is not drunk, not intoxicated is sober, meaning they're thinking clearly. They're, they're thinking right. They can see things. They can think rightly about things. And Paul is saying when we view ourselves, think about who we are we need to think rightly, soberly about who we are. And that is, on the one hand, to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but also the other side of that coin is to not think less of ourselves than we really are. And not to be somebody who is all the time struggling with self-esteem and self-pity. Because interestingly enough, both pride Arrogance and self-pity, guess who the focus is? Me. In pride, I'm thinking about me and how much better I am than everybody else. In self-pity or low self-esteem, I'm still comparing myself to other people, but the focus is on me. And I might have an undervalued sense of who I am, but I'm still the focus. And what the Christian faith teaches us is, no, we don't need to be the focus. We need to focus on other people. And we need to have a right estimation of ourselves. Well, how do we, how do we esteem, how do we measure ourselves rightly? I think in order to do that, we have to have our, ourselves in view through the lens of grace. The way to see ourselves soberly and rightly in a right estimation of ourselves, is to see ourselves through the right lens. And that is through the lens of grace. And the lens of grace can help overcome both of those extremes of prideful thinking and self-pity thinking. Because prideful thinking is countered by the grace of God by reminding you, no, you didn't earn anything. Nothing that you have is because of how great you are. Grace teaches us that everything that you have is a gift of God. So that, that brings down our pride. But self-pity, low self-esteem, grace says, no, you are special to God because God has shown grace and mercy to you. And, and so get your focus off of yourselves and being down in the dumps and remember that God loves you and he has shown grace to you. And so grace brings us into a, a right focus of who we are in God. And I think that grace is even communicated in this verse when, when Paul says in verse 3, for by the grace given me. What does he mean by that? Most commentators think that what he means by that is speaking about his apostleship. That is, his call from God to be an apostle. And so he's speaking from a point of authority. And I think there's legitimacy in that, in understanding that, that he's referring to his apostleship. But I think we shouldn't overlook the, the gracious aspect of what Paul's referring to there. Because why was Paul an apostle? 
It's because God showed him grace, right? So he is, he is a, a, an enemy of the church. He's on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians, to throw them in prison. And God gets a hold of him on the Damascus road and he saves him and he calls him to be an apostle. That was all of grace. Paul says in a different letter, he says, of all of the sinners, I'm the worst. I'm the chief of sinners. He understood the grace of God. He understood that he was an apostle. He was in this position as a missionary to the, to the Gentiles completely by the grace of God. And he wants us to remember that as well as we try to think about ourselves through a sober judgment. And then he says at the end of verse 3, in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. So one way for us to think rightly about ourselves is to link that estimation of ourselves with how God has distributed faith to us. You think, what does that mean? And there's actually a, a disagreement about what this means at the end of verse 3 in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Basically, there are two primary views. One view is that the faith that God has distributed to us is all the same. That is the gospel. And so the faith that Paul is talking about there is the faith that is the gift of God that comes to everyone who is a child of God. And it's a gift. Now, there are very positive things about interpreting it that way. One, if we interpret it that way, that really helps with the pride aspect, doesn't it? Because if we've all been given the same grace, the same faith by God, that helps put us all on the equal plane of, you know, there's nothing to be prideful about because we're all measured by the same standard, which is the one faith that God has given to each of us. So that's one view. And a lot of good commentators take that view. The other view is that uh, faith, the faith that God has distributed to each of you, is actually, is actually different for each person in the body of Christ. And that faith that God has blessed us with is in specific relation to the different gifts that he has blessed us with for use in the body, which he describes in verses 7 and 8. I tend toward the second view. Even though I see the positives of, of seeing it as one faith, one gospel, and that puts us all on equal plane, it doesn't do justice to the word distributed, that he distributes out to each individually. And also, I don't think does justice to the overall context, which is the focus on individual gifts that are given out to the body. So I tend to favor the interpretation that it is that God blesses us differently with different gifts. We all have gifts. We all have roles to play within the body. And he gives us faith and he gives us grace accompanying those gifts to use those gifts in the body. And when we rightly see ourselves as God sees us and as God has gifted us, then that also helps us to not be lifted up in pride. And still, it reminds us that everything that we have is from God. Even though we have different gifts and different roles and different talents that we play in the body of Christ, ultimately, still, it's all from God, isn't it? So that still combats the tendency to pride in our thoughts. 
But in order for us to be the body, to live and serve together as a church, we have to have a right view of ourselves. And that is not an over an overestimation of our own importance, but a sober-minded judgment that is looked at through the lens of grace and fits with, accords with, the measure of faith that God has blessed us with for our gifts and their use in the body. Secondly, Paul teaches us in this passage that in order to serve together as a church, we must have a clear understanding of what the church is and our place in it. So first, we have to have a right estimation of ourselves. Secondly, we have to have a right understanding of what the church is and our place in it. And in order for us to understand that, Paul uses an analogy. In verse 4, he says, Each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function. Now, this is a common analogy, and this isn't the only place in Scripture where this analogy is used in the context of the church. So it is, a, it is probably the primary way of understanding the church in Scripture, and that is the human body. And what Paul is saying is, think about the human body. Okay? The human body is one, right? So it's one body. You are one person. But your one person is composed of all kinds of different parts, right? So you have, you have a head with eyes and ears, a mouth, a tongue, a nose. You have arms, fingers. You have legs knees and toes. You have all of these different parts and they all do something differently, don't they? They all do something differently. So the, the eyes see. The ears don't see. The ears hear. The nose smells, helps you breathe. It doesn't see. It doesn't hear. The mouth, your tongue, helps you speak. It doesn't see. It doesn't help you walk. So these are all different functions, right? So your, your feet and your toes, your legs, they help you walk. Your hands, your arms, they help you pick up things and work with your hands. It, it all serves a different function. But guess what? When it is involved in a task, in a, a common objective, all of those parts are working in harmony. They're all doing different things, but they're all working together seamlessly in harmony, accomplishing the same goal. I mean, just, have you ever watched, some of you may have, some of the guys in here may have seen this, but you ever watched ESPN and, and uh, this, I don't even know if they still do this. They did this a couple years ago, but they had this guy on there, sports science. You remember that? But there's this guy who would come on and, and if somebody was, had a, was really fast or somebody did a dunk on basketball, he would come in and he would explain the science behind it. And just, you know, the speed involved, the, the angles, the trajectory, the, the force, all of this involved in doing that. And really when you think about the amazing thing that the human body is and what it can do, it really is mind-boggling. That, that with all of our technology we have not created a robot that can do anything near what the human body can do. 
I mean, a robot, you know, it walks around. It looks completely, it looks like a toddler first learning to walk, right? You see a robot walking around. Compare that with an elite athlete who has trained over his lifetime and can dunk from the free throw line. You know, just the amazing strength and balance and everything working together in harmony, muscles, eyes, balance, everything working together to accomplish that goal. And not even just athletics, but the, the fine craftsmanship of a pot or a painting or, or the, the, the fine motor skills necessary to repair an automobile. You know, all of this is it's God, God's wondrous grace, right, at work in making this. That's an analogy for the church. That's an analogy for the church. And what Paul is teaching us in this passage is that we all have a role to play in the body. All different, because we're all wired differently, aren't we? I mean, we're all wired differently in terms of our genetics. We've all been brought up differently with different environments and different, uh, different ways that we've been taught. We are all unique individuals. But we've all been brought into one body to be joined together, to work together for a common purpose. And that is to serve for the glory of God and to accomplish his mission. We've been brought together for this purpose. And so the principle is that the church is composed of many different members, many different parts, fulfilling many different functions, but all for the same purpose, so that the the body as a unit will fulfill God's mission that he has called us to. So in Christ, verse 5, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. That is a huge principle. In the body of Christ, you're not your own. We are linked to one another. That also helps us not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. When we remember that we have a relationship, a linkage to every other person in the body of Christ. Thirdly, Paul teaches us in this passage in verses 6 through 8, that in order to serve together as a church, we must each serve in accordance with our God-given gifts. In order to serve together as a church, we must each serve in accordance with our God-given gifts. So we have to have a right estimation of ourselves, not in pride, but sober humility. And then we need to see ourselves as part of a body. We are one part of a unified body, And then we need to see our function within the body in that one part that we do, which is a gift of God. He says in verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. See, again, there's this different distribution, right? Different distribution, different grace. It's all gracious. It's all undeserved. It's all a gift from God. But God has allotted different grace for different roles for different responsibilities within the body. According to the grace that given to us, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. And by the way, 
I don't think that this list of gifts is necessarily exhaustive. I think this is a good representation of the different kinds of gifts that we see in the New Testament church. And one of the reasons why I don't think it's exhaustive is because in other lists of spiritual gifts in the church, we find a few different ones mentioned here and there. So I don't think this is necessarily exhaustive, just as like, I don't think that when Paul says, don't commit immorality, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, that that is a full exhaustive list of everything that is wrong. These are, these are representative of things that we should not do. These are representative of the many different ways that God has blessed the body with gifts. So these are representative. Prophesying, I think, in my view, and this there would be disagreement about this within the Christian church, but in my view, prophecy was a specific spiritual gift that was given during the apostolic era during the time that the foundation was being laid for the church. So, for example, we read in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, you don't keep laying the foundation, right? The foundation is laid, then you build on top of the foundation. So, in my view of the spiritual gifts, especially the miraculous gifts, such as prophesying, speaking in tongues, healing, things like that. My view of them is that they were given for a period of time during which special revelation was being given out through the apostles and the prophets, such that when the foundation was laid then, those gifts ceased and were no longer necessary. So I do not see prophecy in this special sense of receiving revelation from God and testifying to that revelation, I don't see that as an ongoing gift beyond the apostolic era. But when Paul is writing this, it was still an ongoing active gift in the apostolic era. And he's saying, as you prophesy, do it in accordance with the faith that God has given to you. If it is serving, then serve. If teaching, then teach. And also, when we think about serving, it doesn't mean that just people who are really good at serving should serve. We all have a, a, a call to serve within the body. But the idea of service here is particularly those who are good at caring for people, caring for people's needs, physical needs, perhaps even with the idea of deaconship here because the root is the same to serve, if it is teaching, then to teach, to encourage. We all have a responsibility to encourage, right? But some folks are particularly gifted in that way of giving encouragement to one another. We all have a responsibility to give, but some people are blessed financially being able to give more. Uh, Some people have a, a, a great desire to give and to bless other people, but we all have a responsibility to give. We all have a responsibility to show mercy, but some people are particularly gifted in showing mercy in times of need to people. The, the, the fundamental principle here is that God has blessed us all differently. He's, he's distributed out his grace differently for each of us. Some of us are better at one thing than another. Some of us are good at music. Some of us are not good at music. Some of us are good at public teaching. Some of us are not good at public teaching. Some of us are good at administering and organizing things. Others are not good at organizing and administering things. Some are really good at encouraging and showing mercy to people. 
Others, not so much. It's not their, their forte. God has blessed us all differently. And God knew that when he brought us together as a church. And he's done it on purpose so that we could serve together in unity for one role, for one mission. And so let's not be overly inflated, have an overly inflated view of ourselves. Let's have a right view of ourselves through the lens of faith, through the lens of grace. Let's see ourselves as a part of the body that God has built here. And then let's see our individual roles within that body for the sake of the overall mission. As we do that, we will live out the whole purpose for why God has brought us together as a church. So may we seek to apply this in our individual lives. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, you are so good and gracious to us. You are so wise, Lord, in the way that you have planned your church. And even in the way that you have brought this church, Eastside Baptist Church in Winfield, together. You have brought together people from different backgrounds, different social classes, different parts of the country, different vocations, different talents and abilities. And you brought us all together, Lord, to love one another, to serve together, to carry out the mission that you've entrusted to your church. So, Lord, help us to have the right way of viewing all of this, the right thinking about who we are, about what the body of Christ is, and what our role, our individual gift is in that body of Christ. Help us, Lord, then to serve together, to love one another, to minister to the needs of one another, to build each other up, to disciple one another, to help each other grow in faith. Lord, help us to be the body that you've called us to be. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.